Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. My name is Dan Koch. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast that seeks to find common ground to build bridges between extreme views on either side of issues that divide us. So past episodes have been about refugees, institutional racism, the Supreme Court, immigrants, pro-life causes, these kind of things. And uh, if you like this conversation with Mike, I hope you'll check out previous stuff. But with regard to what happened last night, wow, so did not see that coming last night. And here we are on the next day. I slept on it. I've been thinking about it this morning. I'm recording this at 1130 um, on the 9th. And I just got off the Skype call with Science Mike. But I wanted to do a little intro before we got into that interview. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what our response should be, what my response should be. I would encourage people to get involved, volunteer. There's a website I know in the state of Washington or the city of Seattle, I can't remember, that has hundreds of volunteer opportunities. You can sort them by your age or what you're interested in, who you want to help, the elderly, the sick, the disabled, whatever. There's plenty of it. Get involved. It is worth it. There are refugee resettlement agencies in most major cities. Contact them. There are probably mosques in your city or in your town. If they have any sort of outreach to the non-Muslim world, go to a meeting. Engage. I recently was not, I was not going to talk about this just because I don't want to color my per- I don't want to color your perception of me with my political actions, but in this particular election, I felt serious enough about not electing Trump that I and a bunch of friends went down to Reno and we knocked on doors to get out the early vote. That experience was really powerful. It was really powerful to be in neighborhoods I would have no reason to go to. It was powerful to talk to voters, American citizens, that I would have had no reason to talk to otherwise. I just wouldn't have talked to them. I spoke to four people in the span of five minutes who were all under the age of 25 and were worried about a Trump presidency. I heard some information from them about their lives. I got a sense for their lived experience, even though it was small. But that was really valuable. The same will be true for you in any sort of volunteering aspect. If you feel like you are disconnected from the electorate of your country, go connect to some of it. Do it. Don't just watch the new Netflix show. That's what I want to encourage you to do. I know that I have this distinct impulse. I felt it last night, especially to just unplug and tune out, get lost in my own little world, do the little things that I enjoy. I think I need to push back against that. I think that's escapism. I think that's going to be a big temptation for me in the coming months and years. If you're anything like me, know it, see it, call it for what it is. This is probably a good time to remind ourselves that the best life is not one where we are simply entertained, wealthy, autonomous. Personally, I believe Jesus of Nazareth when he said that you cannot gain your life unless you lose it. I think that that's some true thing about the world at a deep level. You have to live for the sake of someone else. This might be an opportunity for millions of us to actually live that out and realize that it's true. We have to respect this outcome. One worry that people had was that Trump would not respect these results if he lost. Well, he won. So we don't have that question to answer. There is a question in four years. If he loses, will he respect those results? Well, we on the losing side need to respect these results. We have to be gracious losers. And to the extent that we may need to push back against some of what Trump plans to do or eventually does, that pushback needs to be compassionate and nonviolent. I think about the families of those murdered in Charleston by Dylan Roof. Here's a couple quotes from what they said to him through the video screen when he was preparing for trial. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive you. 
you hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but I forgive you. Their response to the white neo-Nazi who killed their family was forgiveness. But it's also okay to call out real evil, especially from the so-called alt-right who believe that they've found a champion in Trump. But it's unclear how this is going to manifest itself going forward. I don't know how much the next four years might resemble the civil rights movement. It's hard to say. But if it does start to resemble that, I hope that we will get in our cars and road trip to those events, stand in solidarity with those who are being persecuted. Finally, I just want to say that I am heartened and encouraged that so many of you last night took to the Facebook discussion group to find comfort from each other. That made me really feel happy and like this matters. So thank you for that. That was really honoring. Okay, that's enough heaviness for now. I promise if you get to the end of the episode, there are some silver linings. And I actually consider some of this call to action stuff to be a silver lining of sorts. I think it clarifies and crystallizes things for us. Um, But before I keep blathering on, let's bring in Mike. Guys, this is uh, a crazy... And special day. It's special because I'm joined here by Mike McHarg, also known as Science Mike. And it is crazy, of course, because last night Donald Trump became, well, he won the election for president of the United States. And Mike and I were supposed to talk about evolution today, specifically about common descent between humans and apes, which is a a polarizing topic, although at this very moment clearly not as polarizing as our <laughs> politics. And so we're going to postpone that talk. Mike, I will do my best to get you back on to have that conversation later because I think it'll be great. great. But we, we're not going to talk about that today. What a day. I mean, first, can you just tell us, how are you doing? It's it's uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. It's, th- it's 1 p.m. Eastern on the 9th, the morning after, afternoon after the election. Mike, how are you doing right now? I'm tired, really. Uh, I stayed up um, all the way to watch all the returns come in and watch Trump's acceptance speech. Yeah. And I don't know that I really uh, slept at all last night. And I've got this this cold moving at the same time, I think, from shaking a few hundred hands every night. (laughs) Yeah, right. Eventually, I had to pick up something. So I've, I've certainly felt better physically and emotionally than I do at this particular moment, I feel very shell shocked. Um, I find myself questioning some of my uh, information curation habits and predictive models. So it's, it's a day for uh, grief and reflection and introspection and solidarity and uh, ultimately for rest. I mean, this is an off day for me, so I'm not traveling. So <laughs> yeah, I, I do need to make make the most of it. Yeah, I will just uh, I will say last night I had a small panic attack, but I also felt sort of, um, and I feel this morning maybe a renewed focus on my own work in this world. Um, I wonder if you feel that too. Do you feel sort of? a clarity of purpose for what you are trying to bring into the national dialogue. I mean, how real do you want this podcast to be today? (laughs) Real man. Let's go. Let's get real. I am. I feel some clarity uh, based on my life experience and cultural heritage. I'm always reticent to wade into political issues. Sure. And I find that it's an increasingly necessary component of striving for justice and equality. But my work has grown so much so fast. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people that listen to both of those podcasts and first dozens and then hundreds of people started messaging me and tweeting me and contacting me, asking me for guidance, asking me for a word of insight as the events were unfolding immediately after again this morning. 
I don't have, I haven't processed through a lot of what, uh, what I think about things yet. Sure. And I, I will say I have felt a little bit of, um, the weight of the expectation of the work I've been doing. I think this is the first time I've realized that some people significantly rely on my work for their emotional well-being. And more and more as I travel, people refer to me as a pastor, which is a term I absolutely abhor. (laughs) I'm an author and a podcaster. But it seems like for some kind of exiled diaspora of non-institutional Christians, uh, many of them do relate to me in a way consistent with that word pastor. Yeah. And that that's a heavy mantle because I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, my entire platform is explaining what I'm figuring out, not what I know. Uh, I don't have any authority. And so digging deep as I'm processing grief and just trying to maybe just share honestly from my heart as I'm experiencing things, I think, you know, some people do find it helpful, but it is not without some emotional cost for myself. I did a Facebook Live video this morning because people were asking me to. And uh, and as I read some of the comments um, after I ended the, the video, I just sat in my office and wept. Um, we're at such a, a strange turning point in our history, and it looks so frightening. So how do we wrestle hope out of that situation? How do we become people that promote justice and peace uh, in a world that increasingly doesn't seem to desire that? How do we uh, tease out um, a consensus among groups of people who feel mutually marginalized? And that's, that's the real that's the real tickling point. Let's forget any factual basis. In terms of people's perceptions, you have a large block of largely white, conservative-leaning Americans who feel persecuted and oppressed by the left. Yeah. And you have a large block of non-white, largely progressive-leaning people who feel oppressed and marginalized uh, by the right. And both of them in this election feared for their very basic way of life. Yeah. Their, their basic right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness through this process. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to promote a verdant, peaceful society from that soil. And it's going to be difficult to build empathy and mutual understanding in that environment this this sudden sweeping movement towards populism in the west is um relatively unprecedented and and quite frightening it is Uh, frightening but but we dismiss its roots at our peril yeah i thought about i have a few thoughts here um one is just it might have been easier for me to feel clarity about my work because even though my work is not nearly as far reaching as your work and it is not my day job currently, my work on this stuff is literally to depolarize, like to find some space in the middle. And last night proved more than any single piece of data we've had in the last 20 years that we are more divided than ever. And so in that sense, for me, it it's it's not a... It's not much of a jump to think, yeah, this is important. I need to keep working on this. And I I feel less so that sort of weight of people's expectations just simply because there are far few people who look to me for anything like that. So I really can empathize with that. But regarding, you know, thinking about this huge national uh, nationalist sort of global trend, one of the things I kept thinking about last night and this morning was the way that the family of the victims of the Charleston shooting responded. You remember this? Yes. Um, There were press conferences and these like 17 and 20 year old African-American kids whose parent was shot by a white supremacist forgave him, right? Like on, on television. And this did, this got decent press, but not as much as it should have for how amazing of a moment it was. And I think 
okay, I'm sitting here in my upper middle class white existence and I am scared. I am legitimately afraid of, of many things to come, but they are my example. I mean, (laughs) it's not, it's nothing like that. And they responded with forgiveness and grace and a, and a desire to move forward. And I'm trying to kind of focus on those kids and ask God to help bring me there. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I think that kind of graciousness is important. I just always want to make sure we never fall into a um, forced forgiveness paradigm. Sure. uh, Where we prescribe forgiveness as an act to people who have been marginalized or oppressed. But I think, I think as a matter of personal reflection, um, I'm certainly trying to figure out how to be gracious to, I, to my friends and family. I mean, I, my, my family overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Uh, my city, God love it, voted for Clinton. But all the surrounding areas voted heavily for Trump. These are literally the people that surround me. <clears throat> These are literally the people. Yeah who I, I eat Thanksgiving dinner with and open Christmas presents with. And it's not productive for me to ostracize myself or shun them or break ties with them. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise these, this just becomes increasingly insular and the polarization continues and as an accomplice for justice, who is white, I'm uniquely positioned to have the kind of conversations in white spaces that are simply too taxing or dangerous for marginalized groups to have. Yeah. I can discuss, you know, marriage equality without fear because no one's trying to take my marriage away. I can discuss racial issues without fear because, precisely because I don't have an elevated risk of encounters with police turning violent or leading to incarceration. I think that's something that a lot of us accomplices, white accomplices have to have to work through is how to do that work best and how to increasingly do so independently or without relying on the advice, counsel and direction of people of color. Well, and to be clear, when I, when I mentioned the families in Charleston, I'm, I'm more talking about just their character. You know, those kids had it in them already. If a tragedy happens to you, you turn the other cheek. You know what I mean? I'm I'm not sort of, I'm not talking about some greater policy that now uh, minorities need to react that way in mass to the Trump hordes or, or anything like that. I just more mean like, <laughs> I, am, I, and I didn't think you did. Yeah, okay. I just always like to clarify. Sure. Oh, of course. And I want to clarify too. I just mean like, can I come to a place of as strong as character as those teenagers already had? You know what I mean? And I if, do. if my, if what I'm surrounding myself with, um, does not lead me that direction, then I might question, you know, those, um, Influences. So I I, uh, I put out a quick Facebook flyer mm. when I knew we were doing, uh, we were changing topics and I got a lot of questions back from my friends and listeners. And this one seems to relate to kind of what we're going on. This is from one of the listeners. He says, the biggest thing for me is how can I properly love those in mourning and how am I going to fight the system that will come in with a Trump presidency? What do you say to that? We know how to mourn. And grieve alongside others. How would you re- respond at a wake or a funeral for someone who you don't know very well, but yeah. you know someone in attendance? Uh, that's the same posture you should take with people who are grieving over the election right now. That means um, it's not a time for corrective teaching. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not a time for direction. It's not a time for galvanizing. Right. It's not a time to say, well, you'll get through this. You wouldn't walk in to a funeral and say, well, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Right. That would minimize someone's loss in a really cruel way. You would say, I'm here for you. You would say, "Um, can I get you a drink? You know, those sorts of rituals are precisely what we should be about right now. That's, I think that's what weeping with those who weep means. 
little acts of service and solidarity. In terms of how to oppose any movement away from justice by a Trump administration, work in the system and outside the system. It's time to get really active writing letters. It's time to try to get on your congressman's calendar uh, for an in-face meeting to talk about important issues to you. Yeah. It's time to coordinate with others to carry actions like that in concert. You know, I'm a member of a group called the Planetary Society. We're a bunch of nerds. And you don't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> with a relatively small number of people, we shaped some NASA funding issues by coordinating when we called our congressmen. Hmm. So they got a small flood of calls over a few days, which was enough to move enough votes to change an important funding issue. And that's the kind of work we're going to have to do, organizing within the system. But now more than ever, I'm sympathetic to voices who say that working in the system alone is not enough. So there may be times when protest is called for, when civil disobedience is called for, when economic boycotts are called for, and participating in those movements uh, can help. Uh, I think it's important on uh, justice issues to stand in support and not uh, center yourself in a given movement or given protest. Uh, See how you can render aid. See how you can be a protective force. It's a good time to think about how to equip justice-oriented movements in your community. Is there a surge chapter nearby that's showing up for racial justice, uh, a way that white people support people of color in justice movements? If there's not a surge chapter, maybe you should start one. Um, are what there is groups surge you care about? for listeners? It's, it's called showing up for racial justice. It's basically a white complement to the movement for black lives. Okay. Um, so those are people that support the work that people of color are doing in, in liberation work and justice work and equality work. Surge does really important, important work. And that can be true for any issue near and dear to your heart or any people in your life that you care for. Think about how to support them as they do what they do. That means more than thoughts and prayers. That means volunteering time. That means financial support. We are in a capitalist economy. So in our democracy, it's one person, one vote. But in our economy, it's one dollar, one vote. We don't all have equal votes. So if you're in any position of economic privilege, the way you spend your money absolutely affects the movement for justice in the world. And those are things you want to be aware of and you want to research and you want to learn more about. It matters now uh, even more than it did a week ago. Yeah. Switching to some more data-driven stuff, since you excel there. (laughs) I thought I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, you looked at a lot of the data coming in. I imagine you spent some time with the exit polls, which are the ones that give us info about sort of religious affiliation, race, gender, age. What are your takeaways from those exit polls Uh, I mean, the most obvious one is white people elected Donald Trump. Pretty much any way you slice white demographics by religion, by age, by gender, any way you slice it, uh, Trump took on more than half the votes. Yeah. Um, Which is is really incredible. And and the opposite is true. There's really no way to slice uh, minority groups in a way that more than half voted for Trump. Yeah. Now, there was some lower support compared to Obama. Even if you would have had Obama-like turnout uh, among African Americans, and even if you'd had consistent margins in Latino communities and Hispanic communities, the dramatic surge among white voters would have still carried the day for Trump. Yeah. So, electorally... The country is as racially divided right now as it has ever been, like 1860s level electoral division between America's racial groups. And that is something that is a cause of great lament and consternation for me. 
Uh, it also concerns me that high correlation between uh, professing to be a Christian being white and voting for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's where I was going to go to next. Please go on. Uh, he, he won 88% of evangelicals. I mean, that's, that's a stunning margin. Um, is that all evangelicals or white evangelicals? White evangelicals. Yeah. So what you're referring to is the white evangelical or white born again Christian vote, which Trump won by 81%. Uh, we don't have a evangelical alone um, piece of data for the exit polls. We do have Protestant or other Christian, which Trump won 58 to 39 and we have attend religious services, and among those who attend them once a week or more, he won fifty six to forty. So that's that's the data that's pretty striking. And that's that really amazed me that Trump carried the mainline churches too. It wasn't just the evangelical churches, but white mainline Protestant churches. Well, uh, I think that that number Trump must well. include evangelical. I'm not sure if he if you could separate the evangelical churches from like the Methodist churches. I th- I think you'd get a different number. I mean, I, I hope you're right. I would love to hear that white mainline, <laughs> that he didn't win that. Um, well, here, put it this way. Uh, from from four years ago, we see in these exit polls, he won 8% more of the white evangelical or white born-again Christian vote than Romney won in 2012. He won 4% more of the Protestant or other Christian vote. So we can we can hypothesize that roughly mainline people stayed about the same, which is, which is even still uh, interesting, but he got 8% more of the vote than Romney did of white evangelical or white born again Christians. That has got to turn some heads. This is not to say that there's no justification for an evangelical vote for Trump. I'm not saying that here. I have almost said that elsewhere, but I'm not saying that here. But just that bare fact of his behavior, what does that tell us about, I mean, this is like one of the big existential questions I'm asking myself right now. I left evangelicalism behind a while ago, many years ago, by any sort of stretch of, by any sort of definition of that term. But what does it say about Christianity if it can't help people see Trump for who he was? This is a legitimate question I'm asking myself and I am very surprised to be asking what, like, what are you, what's going on in your mind in regards to this data? I wish I could be more surprised than I am, but my experience losing my faith and having an outsider's look on, um, Christianity as an atheist. Yeah. It's a, it's a social identity thing first it's a political persuasion second. It's maybe a faith tradition third for most of its adherents. Adherents. So this whole pro-life thing became the animating energy that justified for so many people voting against a candidate that they've hated for 25 years. There's absolutely a racial component at play. There's absolutely a xenophobic component at play. There's absolutely a sexist component at play, but you can't oversimplify that movement and say that's the sole animating energy behind those decisions. Part of it is an ongoing animosity for Hillary Clinton, a belief that she uniquely embodies corruption. She uniquely embodies an establishment that's bad for the country. And uh, I think many evangelicals justified supporting Trump solely based on Supreme Court nominations. Now, it sets some really weird precedents, like, so do presidents no longer release tax returns as part yeah. of the campaign? Uh, is 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 now a normal thing for the Senate to just block Supreme Court justices until you have a match between the Senate and the White House? Or is that a new normal? There's some pretty troubling precedents that grow out of this. But I think that's a significant part of the animating energy of how this voting booth behavior came out and why it was so surprising. You know, it was, you can't underplay the correlation. I don't know if it's causation, but there's significant correlation between a movement in the polls toward Trump 
and the FBI announcement that there were additional emails that would be reviewed, which put Clinton back in the popular imagination in the light of she is corrupt, self-serving and dishonest. Which, you know, and and we do need to be fair here. I try to do this on the show. Clinton is a uniquely corrupt politician. I mean, she is roughly as bad as they come in that regard. And that type of corruption is exactly what people are fed up with. One example is, you know, Bill Clinton made millions and millions and millions of dollars in the last 10 or 15 years taking private speeches in countries with basically dictatorships. And he had to clear it with uh, the state department and they re- rejected it. And, you know, initially, and he kept pushing for it. He finally got it approved. And this is not money that went to the Clinton foundation. I mean, this is money that just went into their bank account and it's messy. It is bad form, right? That's bad civic form. He does not need that money. His wife is secretary of state or a Senator, depending on the year, I mean, they, they did dig this grave for themselves a little bit. The Clintons did. And I want to affirm that in people who did not feel like they could vote for her. I think that those are real concerns. Um, my point of view, and I know your point of view just from, you know, listening to you a bit and following you on Twitter was that none of that compared to the danger of what Donald Trump presents to the country. Well, I would also like to say, I don't actually think Clinton is a uniquely corrupt candidate. I think she's a par for the course candidate. I don't think she uniquely embodies some kind of unethical behavior on Capitol Hill or that Bill Clinton does either. I think it's like normal American politics. And I think some of the characterization of Clinton as uniquely corrupt is... um, a right-wing massage of data that if you were to apply the same lens to the behaviors of people on the right, you would view them as equally corrupt. And that's why I tend to be a, I tend to gravitate towards reform candidates in general. (laughs) Yeah. Because I do hold a deep cynicism about both the Republican and the Democratic parties. And I I, I think for good reason. I I think America's, a lot of America's cynicism about its government or at least the political parties in the government is well placed. I just don't think the Clintons uniquely embody that. Yeah, I mean just just for the record, I think Benghazi, the email scandal, I think those represent what you're talking about of a, a massaging of the of the data from the far right. I do think that some of the speeches um, and the speaking fees and and the uranium deal, which the New York Times wrote about. Um, quite a bit with Russia. I mean, I think those represent bigger question marks than normal for political candidates, but it's okay if we disagree about that. We still agree. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's also access, right? Um, I think a lot of politicians would have made those deals if they had the platform to get them. (laughs) Yeah, that might be true. That's my point. That might be true. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess we can't really answer that one way or the other, but let's, let's pivot to fear for a little bit here and then we're going to pivot to whatever hope we can find by the end. A few people asked, what specifically are we afraid of? Are you afraid of? So let's, let's first talk about policy. What do you think Trump will actually accomplish that you are afraid of or think is a step back for the country? I want to start by saying I hope I'm wrong about every single one of these. I yeah. hope this is my equivalent of conservatives being afraid Obama was going to come take their guns. It yeah. never happened. So yeah. everything I'm about to say, I am genuinely hoping never happens and I'm proved wrong or proven wrong. <laughs> yeah. I am worried about immediately repealing the Affordable Care Act without any replacement. Uh, There's a lot of Americans that suddenly have health insurance that haven't before. The Affordable Care Act is flawed. It is deeply flawed. We deserve something better as a country. I'm concerned we will repeal it and replace it with nothing or something even worse. Uh, I worry that same-sex marriage will be reversed via legislation, challenged in the Supreme Court, and held up by a newly conservative Supreme Court so that all my 
lesbian, gay, and other orientation folks who suddenly found the ability to form a legal union lose that capacity. I don't know whether existing marriages would be annulled in that environment or not, or, or simply no more marriages would be permitted, or it would revert back to a state-by-state issue. Um, that's that's a, a deeply concerning thing for me. I worry about a rollback on uh, policies related to environmental regulation, clean air, clean water, yeah. that business interests oppose. We're sitting here at 400 parts per million uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. That's a really critical turning point. We need to be reducing our carbon emissions, and I fear we're about to do precisely the opposite, and that we could be planting a legacy that 25 years from now, we have many more Flint, Michigans, where clean water has been fouled, and municipal water supplies, especially for disadvantaged groups, are polluted. Those are what I consider relatively safe bets. More exotically, I concern, I'm concerned that Trump's uh, lack of emotional stability and how easily he's goaded into conflict could be manipulated by state-scale actors like North Korea or Russia or um, non-state actors like ISIS or ISIL that lead America into unwise conflicts and ultimately that the intersection of the UK leaving the British Union or the European Union and Trump being the president of the United States leads to a further destabilization of Eastern and Western Europe and potentially another global scale conflict. Now that is doom and gloom. And I'm not saying that's like the other ones I would, I would probably, if I was a betting person, put money on, right? That is something that may have gone from an extremely remote possibility to simply a remote possibility or a a Cubs winning the World Series possibility. But let's remember, (laughs) the Cubs won the World Series. And at one point, the Cubs had less of a chance of winning the World Series than Donald Trump won the presidency. Unlikely things happen. They just happen less often. And four years with Trump at the helm of the country, you're rolling the geopolitical dice a lot in four years and my concern is you've changed the odds involved in each role i basically agree with you my concerns my my biggest concerns just existentially are those later kind of bigger ones those are the ones that keep me awake at night and i'll I'll just add that so far cabinet appointments look to be yes men to trump Gingrich to Secretary of State, Giuliani to Attorney General. That would mean the Attorney General of the United States thinks that political opponents should be jailed. Yes, that's Um, terrifying. That's terrifying. So that's the, (laughs) if you guys are wondering, what are all my liberal friends freaking out about? These are the things that we are freaking out about right now. And someone shouted, kill Obama in his acceptance speech. I mean, that's... That's that he is in he's in inflamed and excited, a very dangerous fringe in American society that suddenly feels empowered, that suddenly feels like they're not just empowered, but in control of the country. And I also have a deep concern that we'll see non state violence against marginalized groups start to increase immediately in a similar fashion to what happened after Brexit. Well, I'll give you uh, an anecdote. I got a text this morning from a friend who one of their African-American employees had racist slogans spray painted on her house and her tires slashed last night. Oh, my goodness. Of course, this is anecdotal. You know, I don't know how much that's happening, but just in my own social circle, uh, it's 1045 a.m. the next day, and I've already got an anecdote that's affected people that I know personally. Let's talk about, uh, at a non-policy level, um, when you're, you're kind of moving into this, but what, what specifically are you afraid of happening in terms of um, justice, a lack of reconciliation, uh, hate crimes, that sort of world, sort of giving, as you said, giving voice to these, 
these really dark segments of America. Uh, what are you worried about happening there? An American race war, really, whether the state's involved or not. Hmm. All the state has to do is look the other way for hate crimes to become a real problem in the country again. And like the Jim Crow South. Um, could Could we be entering a time where lynchings happen again? I don't know. Again, I hope this is paranoid rambling. I hope yeah. I hope the next few years people listen to this go, Wow, Science Mike, you are really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. But this is this is a real concern I have. And another concern I have is so many of my Trump voting friends and family don't share it or believe it to be plausible. They would they would be shocked if that happened. Yeah. Um and 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 I guess maybe my deepest concern is Trump voters live to regret their vote. The 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 thing I have I'm most concerned is what what if we're all right and they are wrong about this man and he's now the most powerful person in the world. Yeah. But that means we need to grieve and we need to understand our fear. But then we've got to do some really hard work engaging those people with empathy and compassion. Because to demonize them is to galvanize them in their position to make them feel justified in their actions. Yep. And now the hardest, most radical kind of work has to happen. And that's, that's loving those people. I don't want to play the blame game. So I was going to phrase this kind of how much should we blame the left um, you know, our side, broadly speaking for our snobbery and our elitism and our not taking legitimate concerns of this segment of the population seriously. But rather than asking how much do we blame them? There's obviously some blame. It is some part. What can folks on the left do moving forward? Uh, or is there a book we should read? Like, should we engage certain people in conversation because you're right, we have to be able to engage compassionately. This is where I kind of go back to those kids in Charleston. We have to now set an example for the people with whom we disagree that we are not the demonized, like they have demonized us as we have demonized them. And now the onus is on us as the losers in this election to lose with grace and to show, you know, to show our willingness to cooperate. If, if we are frustrated with the Republican party for blocking legislation, filibustering, shutting down the government, if we are essentially accusing them of being sore losers, we need to not be sore losers ourselves, Right. So how do we, how do we do that? How do we change those attitudes, that snobbery and that elitism on the left that we are surely uh, guilty of to, to varying degrees moving forward. Well, uh, uh, there's a book I love called The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion that I would highly recommend. Yeah. That explores some of the cognitive energy behind these divisions and these actions. And when you understand those mechanisms, it's easier for you to not reinforce them. I can't make a stay like what at a government or policy level liberals and Democrats should be doing. I'm just, I'm starting over with a lot of assumptions right now. <laughs> so, right. No, I just mean more as individuals, not but as, uh, as individuals. We need to really listen. We need to really hear the fears and frustrations that led to the rise of Trump and not dismiss them. The brilliance of the American political system for elites is to keep disadvantaged whites and disadvantaged people of color at each other's throats while income continues to pool for corporations and the richest Americans. I yeah. mean, it's brilliant to keep us riled up in voting about issues that don't directly relate to our economic well-being um, and doing so kind of against ourselves. I've tried to foster a posture today of empathy and listening and understanding 
why did you vote for Trump over Hillary Clinton? And honestly, what what does it invoke in you that's different in, in support for straight white people versus other groups? And what does that mean to you? And what do you think that tells you? And right now, I'm just asking that question, and I'm not posing any commentary or response or pushback. I'm listening and learning, and I'm mainly doing that at a personal level with people I know in my real life. This is not a social media movement. This is not a marketing campaign. This is old-fashioned relationship building to hopefully create the credibility to help them understand, okay, now I, I understand your narrative. Now, can I help you understand some other narratives? And can we think together about how to how to create a country that serves all of these needs for all of these different people instead of pitting us against each other? Yeah, I heard something really great, and I can't remember where it was, but they said, when you engage with someone who you totally don't understand how they could believe what they believe, start by asking them what the problems are that they think need fixing and go from there because then you might, yeah, isn't that great? Then you might find, Oh, I agree. Actually, I think that's a problem too, or I don't think that's a problem and here's why. And then you can talk about why do you have different answers for how to solve that problem? Let's pivot a little bit to religion um, because I know we are getting close to running out of time here. Here's another question from a listener. How can the next generation of people who believe in Jesus separate themselves from previous generations? What does moving forward look like? And I'd like to add to that question myself, in what ways do we need to separate at all? You know, how do we think about this? Yeah, what do what do Jesus followers do with this new information? Yeah. Wow. Staring up at the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not editing out that silence, man. It's it's a dramatic effect. If it was easy, it wouldn't be called the narrow road, would it? Right. Um, maybe we're finally learning what Christianity is. Maybe we're finally realizing that we are under an empire. <laughs> I have had that thought like 10 times since last night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe we learn what what first century Christianity is really like now. Despised by the empire, despised by people who claim the same god, a, a truly strange minority group obsessed with grace. I, I wish I had a better answer to your question, but I'm, no, I'm yeah. still putting it together. Well, one thought I have on this is if you consider the Bible to contain multiple sort of voices within it, you know, you've got the Deuteronomy voice, which is sort of the law, the Old Testament law. You've got the prophetic voice, which is what basically Jesus picks up on when he comes on the scene. He sort of aligns most closely with the prophets. That voice is about reconciliation. That voice is about looking at injustices in the real world while simultaneously being honest about your own sin and your own biases, you know, Mm -hmm. the log in your own eye. And so I think we need to lean into that. We have to lean into how Jesus appropriated the prophetic tradition. But we also need to remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he said that pretty broadly, right? So I think that those are the things to hold intention is like, we, I think we are called to make peace with our Christian brothers and sisters, even though I'm sitting here kind of wondering if that even is a meaningful statement, (laughs) Christian brothers and sisters, but it is in some sense, at least insofar as we're all human beings, it's meaningful. We all have infinite value. And Mm. so that that's kind of what I've been thinking about this question a lot since last night. And that's, I don't know, some of the stuff that I'm coming to. And I think that's the best posture to have right now. This is a time for that kind of introspection and reflection, a heart examination, a determination of where values truly lie and what are, how those values get expressed out. What are the hills to die on, so to speak? And what are the things to, to hold with much more grace? And I, th- I, th- I know for me, those answers are a lot less clear right now than they were 24 hours ago. Yeah. And I think that's probably a healthy, good thing. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I just keep coming back to, <laughs> I, well, for me, um, the last two or three years in my own spiritual development has been this dual movement of joy and sorrow kind of co-mingled. The other day I was thinking about Jesus on the cross and how when the spear pierces his side, water and blood flow out together, right? And how in my experience through contemplative stuff and what I when I think I'm experiencing God, often joy from God and sort of the sorrow of God, they sort of swim together and they they at some times become impossible to separate. And if anything, uh, maybe we're just in a moment right now where we have to start now with the sorrow of God at injustice. We need to see it for what it is. And as we work actively, as we engage in the struggle for justice and peacemaking, we will get that joy half uh, mm. because our lives will be more real when we do that. I mean, I, I see Jesus's critique as to, to the modern day um, affluent white Christian in America as don't worry what your home value is going to be. You know, don't worry if you'll be able to afford the new iPad when it comes out, what you should worry about is love and justice. And when you do work for those things, you either will get the iPad anyway, and it's fine, and you always were going to get it, or you won't get the iPad and you won't care that you didn't get the iPad because you will find rich food and not, you know, dry, crusty bread that mm. you've been striving after. We mm. only have a few minutes. Um, so let's try and transfer to a little bit of silver lining hope stuff. I want to respect your time. I know you are in the middle of a book tour. So about to pack the suitcase. <laughs> yeah. So um let's talk let's talk policy silver lining stuff and then we'll do one last sort of heart moment. Can you give a best case scenario of the of four years of a Trump presidency that you think is at least remotely plausible? Yeah, Donald Trump serves only Donald Trump. And I think that could deeply frustrate a unified Congress that thinks they have a Republican at the helm. Yeah. His policy positions are what he will care about. His campaign promises won't matter to him a bit. Donald Trump has people of different races and ethnicities in his life. Donald Trump is a New Yorker. Uh, he knows many gay and lesbian folks. My hope is that he is a pedagogue in the truest sense of the word, said what he had to to get what he wanted, and will now, without even a moment's regret, throw those promises out the window. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my, my kind of best hope is that he ends up being a relatively harmless, you know, uninvolved president. And his only involvement is really to frustrate uh, his vice president and his Senate because of his highly held New York values. Yeah, I think that's actually plausible. And I, I kind of hope for something along those lines myself. Okay, so to wrap this up, I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of reiterate my silver lining. I feel like it clarifies a lot for me going forward of what I'm here to do and <laughs> the, the value of that work is now not in question for me. And the thing I keep praying for every day is just like the courage to continue to seek what I call kingdom work as opposed to work that just benefits myself um, or my own desires. And I think that that work is now probably a lot more likely to include acts of civil disobedience or protest, as you were talking about earlier. But having done a little bit of volunteer work in this election, I found that invigorating and really meaningful. And all I was doing was just like knocking on doors and like talking to random people in Reno. You know, I wasn't, I was, it was not a sit in, right. It was just, just meeting people. And I found that profoundly meaningful. And I think that if I am called into direct action type of stuff 
it will be tremendously meaningful. And some of what our parents' generation experienced as they were protesting the Vietnam War, we may, we may experience some of that. And you don't, you don't want to be happy for the injustice that leads to the demonstration. But I think we can also, there's value in participating in important work. So that's kind of mm. maybe my gloom-tinged <laughs> silver lining. Uh, what's yours? Give us your kind of final your kind of final thoughts on that. There's no sidelines left. Yeah. You can't complacency is no longer a viable option for anyone. The the pain apparent in so much of American society can no longer be ignored. And people face a choice now. And um I've recently become more of a student of history. And it is often crisis that brings humans to their best action when otherwise they are inert and unable to act. Yeah. And if some of the darker ideas in Trump's presidency end up happening, it may end up leading to a greater push towards justice. Yeah. And, you know, actually just one more thing that I'd like to get your thoughts on. And I'm sorry, we're going a couple minutes over here. But you did, we both have kind of mentioned this, you know, Trump is like the latest Brexit and we have sort of nationalist far right parties gaining power uh, and rising in prominence in many European countries. This is happening all over the West. In a certain sense, we are caught up in a global wave that we have really nothing to do with as individual citizens. What might come of that long run? sort of positively in your mind that that wave eventually crests. And then what do we learn? If, if, if history moves forward towards justice, two steps forward, one step back. And let's say that this wave of nationalism is a step back. What might be those two steps that come forward after it, after it breaks? That's a terrific question. (laughs) Thanks buddy. Um, I don't know. I have a good answer for it. Yeah, it's hard um, to know what might come, but yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a great perspective, and I want to honor it, and I I don't think I have a an answer worth its salt. I really don't. My hope, uh, I'll be the guest for a second. My hope is that <laughs> my hope is that we get a new globalism, because I do think globalism on the whole is very good for the world. But we get a new globalism that is prepared to answer questions we are currently not prepared to answer, like what do we do when all truck drivers are out of work from self-driving cars? What do we do when the Protestant work ethic you put in your 40 hours and then you eat will no longer work with automation? That just will not work for a society. Maybe we get through this fever of nationalism and we come out with some real ideas of how to answer those coming questions. So there's maybe a silver lining for you guys if you want to go super futuristic. Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) Um, All right, dude. Well, thank you so much for your time. I do hope to have you back on to speak about more scientific matters. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for making yourself available. I know everyone listening uh, will feel that way as well. And have a, my pleasure. Have a great rest of your book tour. Where can people find you if they aren't already in touch online? You can learn about my book, Finding God in the Waves, which is kind of how I struggle to reconcile my religious experiences with modern science at findinggodinthewaves.com. And if you'd like to connect with uh, other parts of my work, like my podcasts or anything like that, just go to asksciencemike.com. Thanks, Mike. And we'll talk again later, man. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. I think we will still be on schedule to have an episode coming up Monday morning. But with this election spinning sort of out of control uh, to something we didn't anticipate, I do have to kind of think about what that's going to be. It may not be the one that I had already recorded and had ready to go. So thank you for your patience. I do feel pretty confident that this work of depolarization needs to continue. And so I plan to keep doing it. 
And I thank you guys for listening and supporting the podcast. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Koch, K-O-C-H. You can go to depolarizedpodcast.com for show notes. I've got a link to Mike's book and the other book he recommended up there. And I will also put a link to the exit polling data that we discussed. And please join the Facebook discussion group. Depolarized Podcast Facebook discussion group. (laughs) Thanks, guys. 